Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. The Baba Yaga Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized year, folklore, and history, lovingly researched and recorded by your hosts, Margot and Sonia. Hi, my name is Margot, and I have a master's degree in American history with a focus on Indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. This week, we are talking about girls, girlhood, girl childhoods. Yeah. Um, I, at least I guess will we be should define that. Into teenagers, because I am talking about early modern North America, and so we have the witches. Yes, I think just to define our terms, I'm going from like age about six mm-hmm. to like early teens like 13 ish yeah 14 in in some cases it might run a little longer but that generally at least in a historical context was the time when it's like okay from about six seven ish years old you're actually like no longer a like baby baby toddler situation yeah. where like you need constant supervision and like that kind of thing um and then after about 12 13 14 depending on context you know you were either getting married in some cases um or in others you would start to be seen you would not get married right away but you would no longer be seen as like you know a a girl so much as a young a young woman yeah. a young lady a a youth <laughs> a maiden you know exactly so i guess we'll just take it away and start out in antiquity obviously as per usual i'm talking in broad strokes i can't cover everything <laughs> but you know i'm going i'm going to do the best i can so let's start out in ancient greece uh For the first about six years of both girls' and boys' life, they would spend in the, like, women's section of the home, because there was a separate Mm -hmm. wing in most Greek houses that would be for the women of the house, the nurses, the female slaves, and the children. And for that first little while, siblings would play the same gender-neutral games, they'd have toys that they would share they had pets um apparently though juggling dolls and the game of balancing sticks on your hand was considered especially feminine okay so you know juggling is uh that's only for the girls it's not manly enough can't can't be having your boys juggling remember that okay But girls were also not discouraged from playing physically demanding games, um, especially in the case of Spartan girls who would absolutely be expected to be, like, tough and hardy and able to hold their own. So there are a lot of games that are described from ancient Greece that are, like, you know, involve physical violence to some degree or another or that would involve like piggybacking on other children and then fighting each other or like throwing rocks at people like it's it's a lot of like you know kids playing 
you know, a little bit rough and tumble. This isn't rough housing. This isn't a sanitized childhood. Exactly. Some some tomfoolery, some shenanigans were going on. However, at the age of seven, this is when you start to see a bit of a separation. So if you were a citizen boy, you would be sent to school, whereas female citizen girls would, well, I mean, they wouldn't be citizens, but like, if your father was a citizen and you were, you know, of that class, shall we say, then those girls would at that point begin to learn how to run a household from their mother. So this would include, you know, managing slaves, um, weaving, budgeting, cooking food, running the cleaning and production, like making clothes, that sort of thing. However, if you were a lower class or a slave girl, you were either doing, probably you were going out and working in the fields, or if you were a slave, doing all kinds of hard physical labor. So I think that's a thing we need to remember is that in a lot of cases, having like a childhood in that sense is not you know, especially in the lower classes, yes, there's obviously, like, kids are still doing kid stuff, but they are being put to work quite early. There, There's not a lot of room for just kids having fun yeah. kind of situation. It's a lot of, yeah, of course, you would still maybe have your dolly, you would still maybe play sometimes, but you're also expected to put in quite a bit of work. Yeah. Um... When you look at the averages of marriage, it can be a little bit deceiving, but basically it really depended on where you lived. So, for example, in Athens, a girl was considered to be grown up at around 14, and that was the average age of marriage. So at that point, that's definitively the end of your girlhood. You have given up your toys. You put away childish things. You know, you don't... Exactly. Um, And at that point, you would get married. And normally, uh, the men would be around 30 marrying the 14-year-old girl. This was a way to ensure that girls were still virgins when they were wed. And it also made it possible for husbands to choose who their wife's next husband was going to be before he died. So Athens just knocking it out of the park here. 10 out of 10. Uh, Sparta, on the other hand, had a lot more freedoms for girls and young women. Girls were expected, again, to be educated. They could, um, they would often participate in different, like, games and sports. Um, They were expected to be able to hold their own in a fight because if the men were off fighting, you were the one who had to protect the homeland, basically. Um, So Spartan women rarely married before the age of 20. So, you know, the girlhood stage of life tended to last longer and you had a little bit more time of just, you know... Being able to be a kid, basically, rather than being married off, like, the second you start menstruating, basically. Uh, Roman girls, which 
you know, obviously we're going, we're skipping forward in time a yeah. little bit, had it actually somewhat better. Roman children also played a lot of different games. There's toys known from both archaeology and literary sources. There were animal figurines or keeping live pets like birds. Uh, girls and boys are both shown in Roman art playing the same types of games, such as playing with balls, um, the rolling a hoop with a stick, playing knuckle bones. There were also dolls that had been found that would be about uh, like 15 centimeters tall and they had little joints. Oh. So like ancient Barbie doll, if you will. <laughs> and at the age of seven, a girl was presented with the same opportunity as boys, which was education. Oh. So especially in the upper classes, yeah, education was considered super important um, because you did not want your daughter especially if you were wealthier, it was seen as important that she could, you know, move through society, be intelligent, be educated, be able to kind of participate in, in life, um, especially, and, you know, not be seen as like ignorant because that's going to embarrass her family. It's going to embarrass her future husband. So, she might attend a public school that's nearby, the family might hire a private tutor, or there might be some overlap of both of them. And she would be expected to learn Latin, Greek, art, literature, how to manage a household, and in some cases, even some skills in politics and money so that she could manage her husband's affairs if he went off to war or if he was otherwise out of town. There was also a lot of um, like co-ed education. So a lot of the times the public education that was available in like Roman Italy would be, especially in the younger ages, you'd be learning side by side with boys because it's, you know, we're all learning Latin and arithmetic today. There's no need to separate people out. Um, she would also be expected, of course, to still be learning from her mother about how to again, run a household, skills like weaving and sewing and that sort of thing. Again, though, of course, among the lower classes, education would have been quite limited and was mostly geared towards marriage, domestic tasks, childcare, uh, you know, basically the things that they figured they were going to need. And even though noble girls were known to marry as young as 12, um, there were, you know, for the most part, girls in ancient Rome would have married more into their teenage years. So, you know, again, slightly <laughs> better than like, you get married at 14, done, right. <laughs> done and dusted. As we move into the Middle Ages, we start to see, you know, a slight, a, a, a shift, if you will, a slight difference in terms of how uh, girls are being treated. Mm -hmm. I mean, as had been the case previously, children were encouraged to play and adults made sure they had that opportunity. 
Um, there have been archaeological discoveries of little toy knights and horses, like tiny dolls with cooking pots and pans. There's descriptions of kids playing sand, like like playing with sand and building sand castles or sand monasteries in some cases, which Aww. I thought was kind of funny. And again, children kept playing ball games, games with sticks, different types of sports. And in the high, by the high middle ages, there were also board games like backgammon and chess that kids would also play to pass the time as their, you know, as their adults around them did. There was also some, some idea of children requiring additional protection. As we've talked about earlier, there was a, a crackdown on, you know, please stop leaving your babies in manure piles. But there were also starting to be some laws around the correct treatment of kids, uh, particularly orphaned kids. Okay. This applied, of course, to both boys and girls. But for example, in medieval London, there were laws where you could not place an orphan child in the care of someone who would benefit from his or her death. So if you, you could not give someone a kid if that person was in line to inherit from that kid, right? Like if they would be, so like, you know, you can't, um, when when Mufasa dies, you can't give Simba a scar because then he can usurp the throne, right? Like it's that kind of thing. Um, and there, there's just also this idea of uh, we also see medieval medicine approaches the treatment of children separately from adults. So there's this idea of kids are, you know, they they are vulnerable and they do require some, you know, somewhat more delicate handling in medicine. They need some protections under the laws. And yeah, they just in general were not seen as these like little adults that we tend to think yeah. of. Like they were still very much seen as you know, they're kids, they are, you know, in the process of developing, basically, right. like they are not fully able to understand things the way adults do and like, have that level of maturity and knowledge, but that doesn't, you know, so we, we make allowances for that fact. Yeah. Um, and even when you look at something like the Age of Reason, right? So in 1215, the Fourth Lateran Council stated that communion was not obligatory. So taking the Eucharist um, in church was not, uh, you, you didn't have to take that until the Age of Reason, which was about the age of seven. So this is the idea that this is about the age when a child can understand right from wrong. So there's an understanding that, right, like if a two-year-old or three-year-old like hits somebody or steals something or throws a tantrum, like they're too young to understand, right? Like they don't know that what they're doing is unacceptable. Yeah. But when you hit age seven, they're like, okay, kids understand that like being mean to your little brother is yeah. wrong. They understand that like biting your friend is not okay. <laughs> like... And it it is, you know, this idea again of like, okay, yes, they're not little adults, but we are kind of understanding that there are these sort of developmental stages. 
So from about that age, there was at least some expectation as well. Again, the children would help out around the home with tasks suited to them. Um, for girls specifically, there would have been the expectation that they would be, again, following along with their mothers or perhaps another female relative by this age. So they would be doing a lot of maybe fetching and carrying, like fetching wood for the fire or water from the home. They might be helping with things like, you know, small tasks in the kitchen, cleaning produce, shelling peas, um, maybe scaring off birds from the family garden. And, you know, of course you get more responsibility as you get older, yeah. right? As you learn, okay, you learn how to spin, you learn how to weave, you learn how to you know, do all the tasks that you're going to have to do as an to adult. need to do in order to be an adult. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, once again, obviously, if you are a peasant girl, you're not getting a formal education as we would think of it, yeah. but you are learning a large number of skills that you are going to need to survive. Like you're getting educated in a very practical, hands-on way. Yeah. Because if you don't know how to milk the cow and then take that milk and turn it into cream and butter and cheese, well, you're not going to have any dairy products through the winter and your family might starve. Yeah. So, you know, if you don't know how to spin and weave wool and then take that wool and fabric and sew it into garments, your family's going to freeze yeah. to death. And for noble girls, this was, you know, again probably again it's very situation dependent <laughs> on country and region and their families but for the most part it's again they would be taught less so about hands-on household tasks and more so how to run their households yeah. how do you budget how do you delegate how do you you know throw a feast for a hundred people how do you you know manage money when you know when you're trying to figure out, okay, how much food do I need to have stored up for X number of people for X number of months until yeah. we can get, you know, the spring crops come how in. How do you ensure that all the women and children who are living in the cottages on your land are, like, provided for? Stuff like that. And, of course, girls at this time as well would have been provided with... Um, a religious education specifically you know you would be expected to learn about the lives of the saints know all the saint days know how to pray no bible stories that kind of thing right and that would be again for both boys and girls um and other than that yeah the only other kind of girl kind of specific thing that we might talk about would be these ideas of learning um, some amount of child care um, as we've talked about previously right like sometimes neighboring girls would be hired to watch the babies and small children of other women in their village or in their town so you know we see this as well that from you know similarly to today you can get you know, maybe a 12, 13 year old is looking after the baby for yeah. an afternoon and she gets paid a few coins to do that. So she's, you know, bringing in a little money for the family while also practicing skills that she's going to need basically for once 
she gets married and has her own children. Yeah. As we enter the early modern period, there's some some transformation, but not... Let me rephrase that. As we enter the early modern period, there is some change in how childhood and children are understood. Um, But it's not this, like, giant change that a lot of the times is presented as, like, ah, yes, before, like... The Enlightenment children were just little adults, and after that they were seen as, like, angelic cherubs who have never done anything wrong ever. And it's like, that's not quite what happens. Um, You know, they were still viewed in the early modern period much the way that they would have been in the medieval and and in antiquity, which is, you know, they're kind of seen as, like, incomplete little people. They are little humans, but, you know... They don't have skills, they don't necessarily have the reasoning and maturity of an adult, and it is the adults in their lives, it is their responsibility to make sure that this child, you know, is guided correctly to become, like, a responsible, moral adult. Okay, so there is a shift in understanding, uh around 1690 when you get John Locke who writes the kind of big fancy essay an essay concerning human understanding and basically he puts forward this idea that the human mind at birth is a blank slate there's no rules for processing anything and exactly uh information and knowledge is added and rules are processed uh are formed by one's sensory experiences so basically the mind of a child is born blank you have like an empty bucket and it is the duty of the parents and other adults in their life to fill that blank page right, right? like that is their uh Yeah, like, that's a big part of what being a parent or a teacher is, right? As compared to, you know, seeing it more so as, like, children are already born with their own impulses and behaviors. And, yeah, most of the time they're doing stuff that is not very reasonable because they're kids and they don't have the skills to understand things yet. So I need to, as the adult, go in and correct them. Now it's... They're just blank, empty, head empty, no <laughs> thoughts. Relatable. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, wow, me. And Locke also is, he emphasizes the importance of going about this, like, filling of the mind in a pleasant way. Um, so, you know, trying to learn to read or learn his letters or you know learn any type of skill in ways that are engaging for the child rather than you know viewing it as like sit down shut up it's time to learn (laughs) which you know uh is something that takes a while to go fully mainstream but this is where we start seeing these ideas come up 
And, you know, again, as we've talked about before, girls at this point, they are still, you know, growing up. They are still going to be following around their mother or other female relatives and learning all the household tasks, which is still, in many cases, fetching water, gathering sticks, going on errands, milking the cows, preparing food, washing, cleaning, mending, knitting, that sort of thing. But we also start to see kids performing like a sort of early, early manufacturing work. So a girl in particular might be trained to uh, do stocking knitting or hand knitting or lace making, which then she would be able to sell her labor and sell that work. Um, so it's basically, uh, especially in more urban environments, when you're seeing the textile industry start to take off, especially from the 17th century onward, that does become very um very important as a source of both learning skills for the girls that they can then use in their adulthoods um, and also as a way of bringing in extra income for poorer families <laughs> there was also at this point um, somewhat of a rise in more formalized education because there was an increase in the number of schools that were open to girls, including boarding schools across Europe in the early modern period. But these were very, very different from what we would think of as a school um, today. For boys, these types of schools would be much more what we would think of, where you know, you're learning languages, yeah. uh, different aspects of mathematics. Whereas most girls' schools, yes, you would probably learn, you know, some basics of reading and writing and household math, well, arithmetic, really. But a lot of these schools would have focused on what we would think of as more so like home ec. So a lot of learning about cooking, uh, laundry, sewing, needlework, if it was a fancier school for fancier girls, then they would learn social graces, such as oh. music, dancing, fancy needlework. So it was mostly for domestic purposes that you were sending your girl to school. And if you were, you know, wealthier, whether that was through, you know, being part of the expanding middle class or you know, maybe lower aristocracy, you would want your daughter to learn things like dancing and etiquette and music because then that's impressive to other fancy rich people families and she can get a better husband. <laughs> so that's essentially a lot of what girls... Exactly. <laughs> all these young ladies, they're so accomplished. They all sing and play piano and embroider cushions. <laughs> I don't know how. That and I mean... <laughs> Pride and Prejudice shout out. What is it, what is it that uh, the sister says a woman, a, a truly accomplished young woman must do? She must sing and dance, have a have a thorough knowledge of the modern languages and something else. 
Yeah, and I mean, that's a, a whole part of it as well, right? Like, it, they're kind of, like, Jane Austen is poking fun at this whole idea in Pride and Prejudice, yeah. specifically because it's such a ludicrous standard to put women to in this time, when it's like, yeah, most families are not going to shell out the money for their girls to be educated in, like, French and English and German and probably some Latin yeah. and Greek and math and, you know, also music and dancing and etiquette and needlepoint and painting and drawing. Like, yeah. and also teach her everything about running a home. And it's kind of pointing out that this is a ridiculous standard to be saying, well, a woman is only accomplished yeah. if she basically has a complete man's education and a complete woman's education. Yeah, which is why then you have Elizabeth come out with, uh, I've never seen such a woman. She would be truly fearsome <laughs> thing to behold. <laughs> yeah, I'm not gonna lie, I would be terrified of a woman who was like, I speak seven languages, I know all of the classical dances, yeah, I can, I can draw, sing, I can play multiple paint, instruments. Upholstered furniture. <laughs> <laughs> oh. anyway that's been my bit on <laughs> girls growing up education the big themes have been yeah you can have fun and roughhouse and do nonsense but you're also going to learn like a lot about sewing there's a lot of sewing a lot of like churning the butter a lot of learning preserving all Fruits and Base veggies. Yep, keeping a garden. Um, I guess the big thing I haven't touched on is also medicinal and like nursing. Um, care would have been relegated to women, so girls growing up would learn from their mothers, from their grandmothers. You know, how do you, you know, make a cough syrup? How do you soothe a headache? How do you bring down a fever? Right. Um, so they would be taught all of that as well, because we have to remember that for most of history, it was a woman's responsibility to be the one doing basically primary first aid medical care to the family. So she needed to learn as a child, you know, this is how you make a salve for a wound. This is how you wrap a cut. This is how you keep a cut clean. Yeah. So it's a lot of that sort of thing as well. And I think it's time to take it away off to the off to the new world we go. Yeah, um, totally. So starting and sort of I'm going to start in um, the 16th century. So when uh, Europeans uh, started showing up in the new world, because what I'm going to talk about, I'm going to talk about uh, indigenous communities a bit, but really sort of about the cultural exchange um, around concepts of gender in this early modern period, because uh, things sort right. of radically shift. Uh, and it's really interesting. Um, so just for a basic breakdown of what's going on in this like colonial period is the early 17th century 1600s you have um, actual colonies being developed and this takes a while right so you have um, Jamestown is set up by the British in uh, 1607 and then um, Quebec 
uh, has started having um, various sort of towns and trading posts established in um, 1608. Uh, the issue with both of those establishments, though, were that they only brought men. This was particularly detrimental for uh, Jamestown because I think of the 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 way that uh, society was like very gendered in England. Um, so uh, there was, it, it was, there was a period of about three years where there were only men and they lost about half of their population because like the men just straight up didn't know how to feed themselves. And the ones that survived mainly survived because of assistance from um, indigenous societies who were like, dude, why don't you know how to preserve your food for the winter? Um, yeah, it sounds about right. And so what you have shortly after this then is uh, the English crown essentially ships a bunch of uh, women, uh, mainly from cities who were not doing great in the city, right? And were willing to go off to what at this point was assumed to be essentially like a death sentence <laughs> um yeah who were who were willing to be shipped off to like marry these strangers in a land where they were these men were the only people who they could communicate with who had any sort of society that they understood whatever to like sort of make this colony viable um a similar thing happens in quebec right um a few families came to trading posts with the hudson bay Col colony um with the company and but it was really uh just like wasn't being pitched great in france is like hey go to this frozen tundra to like trade beaver like families weren't really about it so um that's when you get it's fair <laughs> the uh one of the generals who was like helping set up all these trading posts um was it I just lost his name, so we'll oh. come back to that. Um, Where's JP when you right, need him? came up with the idea for the Les Filles de Roi, or the, the Daughters of the King, where essentially the king paid for the transport and dowries of a bunch of like teenage girls from Paris to be shipped out and become brides of all of these men who were living in these colonies and trading posts. Um, and that's when sort of the actual population of Quebecers started to like actually grow. Um, before that, it was a pretty stagnant only, uh, the only growth that happened there came from people moving from France to Quebec outside of obviously like the indigenous societies that were thriving, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. So, for, like, Europeans in the colony, the only growth was from people who were, like, moving there. Um, they had a birth rate that was not replacing the people who were dying. So uh, it wasn't until these women came and, and married these Quebecers. It was also the period when uh, Quebec French sort of, like, solidified into a thing. And so you have, like, this actual identity of, like, a colony, a full community sort of popping up there. Um, a similar thing was happening in Virginia with Jamestown. Um, and also 
um, in the 1630s, you have a similar thing sort of happening with uh, the West India Company settling, setting up um, new Amsterdam and new Netherlands, which is now New York and New York. <laughs> um, so New York City and New York State. Um, and listen, they had one name and they just ran with it. And so Quebec did the same thing. You have Quebec, Quebec, and, Quebec. and Quebec City. Good enough. Yeah. Um, we don't need another name. We found one. It's perfect. And so you have all of these like disparate communities of Europeans um, who had sort of differing cultures. And then you also have all of these indigenous societies that these communities are, are very dependent on and um, spending a lot of time like trading with and trying to settle like land disputes and all of these things. So you have um, very distinct cultural exchanges happening. And so your life depending on where you were and at what time period you were uh, very drastically. Um, I'm going to start in the in New Netherlands um, and we're going to talk about that and then sort of talk about uh, the communities that sort of took over the East Coast and their interactions with indigenous communities and how that created sort of the, the new world idea of, of girlhood and womanhood. Um, so the Netherlands in Europe was famed sort of for uh, their very educated women. Um, an English merchant and economic theorist, Josiah Child, who traveled and traded with the Dutch, um, actually created a text where he recommended that England emulate the Dutch example of instructing all children, uh, as well as daughters as sons, in arithmetic and merchant accounts. Um, so... The women of the Netherlands were educated um, throughout their girlhood alongside of boys. Um, they got the same education up to their teens. Um, yeah. So this culture was brought over to um, this colony. So like the, the history of New Amsterdam in particular is sort of slow growth, right? The the Dutch were not really um, interested in, like, settler colonialism. They were more about setting up, like, trading posts throughout the world. Uh, the West India Company is sort of, like, their, their major example. They employed right indigenous peoples of all of these areas uh and created sort of like plantations where they didn't have to settle a lot of dutch people in these areas um new amsterdam was sort of becoming a unique situation there where they did send families um to set up like a, a small town and with that right they brought a lot of the the dutch culture and the idea that marriage in particular was going to be a partnership 
uh, less so than a I now own I a man now own this woman and she is going to like do stuff for me and keep my house and that's it um, everything including financial assets were held in a partnership um, if a man owned a business then his wife was a partner in that business um, and in his like so it wasn't totally equal in the way that we would think about it now right um a single woman could yeah. represent herself in court uh in criminal as well as in civil cases which is very rare uh in european yeah. communities um if she was married then she was considered a minor uh who was dependent on her husband but she could still represent herself um in certain cases especially in the absence of her husband so the the netherlands right is like it's a seafaring port community like country um yeah and they were like very mercantile so men were often away trading and their businesses relied on having someone at home in the port to deal with everything and that would then be the wife right so a wife would run all parts of a business and so girls had to be educated well enough to understand you know all of the accounts and set up and if uh if a husband died depending on how their wills were set up a wife would inherit um at least half of the um assets that the the husband left behind so um, if they had sons, usually what would happen was the, the wife would inherit half of the assets and control of their businesses in partnership with a son who would inherit the other right. half. Um, they, it was not uncommon for uh, men to set up wills where a wife inherited all of their assets. Um, and then she could decide at what point in time their son could enter their trade. Right. Um, and there's a lot of like sort of complex ideas around like remarriage and stuff. But for our purposes talking about, we'll like get more into that when we talk about like marriage and womanhood. But for girlhood, this, yeah. this was important because this affected how Dutch girls and Dutch girls in the new world were raised, uh, you know, throughout their, their childhood. So there wasn't, while there were different sort of mannered expectations for girls until they were, you know, into their teens, they would be educated in mostly the same way as boys. They could go to your standard public school. Um, They were expected to learn maths and uh, writing and everything at the same level as a boy. Now they would not, they could, if they wanted to, get a higher education. Um, it was not super usual, um, just because that was expensive. Um, and at this period, right, uh, families were expected to pay for the education of their children. And there were options where, with public schools where the state would pay or there were scholarships and things if a family was like, falling on hard times or something like that um but um, almost you know across the board 
any sort of middle to upper class child would be educated through primary and basic secondary school. Um, once they were getting into sort of a secondary education, they would be educated separately. Um, so primary school was all co-ed and then they would be separated and girls would learn more sort of like household accounts. Um, but again, because they were expected to do most of the same things as their husbands, um, they would have to learn a majority of the things that their, the, their brothers would learn. Um, they would not normally go on to a, a higher education where, you know, you would learn more of like the languages and history and things like that, um, just because it, it wasn't seen as sort of like necessary for basic runnings of businesses and things. Um, they wouldn't be dealing as much with like the international trade aspects, more of the like day to day running of accounts. Um, but yeah, it was, it was an, an, for this period, an incredible amount of freedom. Um, yeah. So, and as, so the, the colony of new Netherlands didn't last super long, right? It was bought out by the British and became New York pretty quickly. Um, but because the English were setting up so many colonies elsewhere and, you know, trying to later deal with taking over Quebec and other things going on in Canada, um, there wasn't a whole lot of, like, sort yeah. of active uh, cultural colonization happening there. Uh, so yeah. the Dutch were able to really sort of hold on to this culture for quite a while and to sort of expand it out as they, you know, interacted with other colonies. Um, this also sort of like led into the British and French interactions with indigenous peoples. Um, so in a similar way to the Dutch and the expectations of, of women, um, indigenous women held like quite a high stage as we've talked about before right these are uh especially on the east coast mostly matrilineal societies and this iroquois and uh algonquin communities extend into the midwest so out to like detroit which was where a lot of like new france trading was happening um so these societies are all sort of to varying degrees matrilineal, right? You inherit your family status right. through your mother. And women had a lot of political control. And especially with ceremonial trading, um, women had a lot of power. And so these Brit these uh these European merchants, um, especially the French who are dealing sort of throughout all of uh the what's now called the the Haudenosaunee, um, or the Iroquois Confederacy, uh, they were have interacting with indigenous women um, to a degree that they weren't familiar with in Europe, right? Interacting with women on trading, women having sort of a final say on what men had set up. That was unexpected for French men. And so once they started really having like families in New France and uh, like bringing 
Quebec women, you know, with them to trading posts and stuff, that really changed the way that indigenous people were willing to interact with the French. So there was always sort of like a, a, a trade happening, right? You know, we get this whole history of like the beaver and all of that. But once wives started showing up at trading posts, the Iroquois and Algonquin, it, it influenced the level of trust and sort of confidence in the stability right. of these arrangements because they were like, oh, well, if you're bringing your women, the people who are really controlling how this trade is going to happen... Um, then you must really want to have something to do with us. Um, and th that affected Quebec's women's position in their society. So it's not, Quebec has a very different sort of cultural history than women in France do. So, right, in another, you know, 60 years, no, sorry because we're still in the 17th century. So in in 100 years or so, you know, you have the, the French Revolution and the sort of like change of women's status in France. But starting in the 17th century, women in Quebec are holding a lot more power because of the influence of trading with the Iroquois and Algonquin. Because in order to really establish a, a, tr a firm trading relationship and expectations, right, women in the indigenous societies were making sort of the final calls on these things and taking part in these, the rituals that surround trading. And to have those expectations fulfilled, French Quebec yeah. men had to sort of have their wives present. And, and again, you have like, this is a huge swath of land. New France is massive. And you have a similar thing as to what's happening, you know, in, the Netherlands and Europe where men are going off and like seeking new trading routes, uh, introducing like the, you know, proposed trading to communities that they haven't dealt with before, you know, all these sorts of things. And women are staying at the posts that they've already set up and dealing with sort of like day-to-day -day activities. And so you have women taking on a much more active role in their communities. Yeah. Um, influenced by ideas from indigenous communities as well as like just basic necessity um, and also trading with the Dutch. Um, so women are getting more of an education. Um, education in Quebec is mostly done within the home. So there's that sort of thing. Um, but we Oof. can also get into uh the the sort of third group that I want to talk about, which is the Puritans of New England, <laughs> which has like a whole sort of unexpected history, you know, with the way that we talk about Puritans where it's like, so girls, the, the Puritans are, are interesting, right? Because of the way that they conceive of children. Yeah. Um, We've talked about this before, I think in our in the last season, where like children are sort of just like especially evil um, because they don't have they haven't been properly instructed in how to avoid, you know, possession and sinning and all of these things. They're like more open to the influence of the devil. Uh, 
and right in Puritan like theology, essentially you have to join the church as someone who is fully capable of like making that choice, and you have to essentially everybody within the church is considered yes like they use the language of like being a saint right so like you are living this saintly chosen calvinist life right you have fully given up like being a horrible sinner and you're trying to be an example of heaven on earth right um you're creating your city on a hill for the rest of christendom to follow your example um and in as they come to north america yeah it there's like a weird gendering that i say weird what there's a gendering that happens to the religion um so in comparison to the way that religion has been talked about in right old world europe in sort of old Catholicism, um, the mm-hmm. Puritan theology is sort of distinctly feminized. It is a submission, right? Um, it is, and uh, yeah, you're you're submitting to the will of God, right? It's this very like, yeah, in the context of. Uh, like European culture, it's sort of the position of a wife in relation to right God and Jesus and all of that. Um, but because of the way that the society sort of develops, right, instead of in the way of the Dutch or of the French or even of the British in Virginia, the the Puritans of New England don't really want anything to do with the indigenous people. They really see them as uh, praying to a lesser god, as that god being part of like this community of devils, and that they can tarnish the spiritual haven that they've created in New England. Um, We've talked about sort of what comes of that in previous episodes, uh, the Thanksgiving episode in particular, um, basically a lot of murder, um, but the like basic trade and community that develops in New France and in Virginia and in parts of uh, what becomes New York doesn't happen uh, to the same degree in New England. They are really like insular within their own sort of communities um they do eventually so like you have all these like sort of separate puritan colonies um the largest of course being massachusetts bay uh and they start you know dealing with eventually when they stop killing the friends or quakers they do start dealing with like pennsylvania and stuff like that but their their building of communities Mm -hmm. with indigenous people doesn't really happen and so they have this very protectionist idea of like our men have to protect our colonies and that affects sort of how this feminized religion like develops so you have this teaching of girls 
that they mm-hmm. to really lean into that idea, right? That their place is is to be holy and heavenly and in, within the church, and boys are supposed to uh, sort of express that holiness through their community. So yeah. when once uh, New England is really firmly established as like full functioning colonies um you have the the church members so the the people who once as they come of age actually join the church are which is a whole like process right um when you're a calvinist um they are mostly women and so men are attending the church but they're not like full members because that requires like a whole bunch of like continuous work throughout your whole life and the the men and boys are supposed to express their holiness through good works for their community right you're not going to get into heaven through good works but the way that you express your submission to god is through taking care of your community and protecting your community um so you start to get very gendered raising of children so girls don't get the same education they are you get this is where they've started historians have sort of you know we talk about the different spheres mostly happening in the 19th century but recent uh historians have sort of started to trace this back to the early puritans right where you have this idea of women are supposed to be the sort of spiritual bastion of the home they're supposed to keep the home they're supposed to protect the children from being you know like little demons essentially (laughs) being possessed or like not learning properly like that they're supposed to be these saints on earth um and that they're supposed to create the community within the church. And so girls are really separated from boys at a young age and brought into the church, whereas boys are brought out into the community and taught to be like upstanding community men and uh, like merchants and stuff. And I said that I was going to talk about witches a little bit. We talked before in the New England witch episode Um how this is like influenced right by that sort of uh, unsettlement that happens with the Puritans as they move into this, like what they perceive as a very violent and scary place. Right. So because they're again, to sort of like compare this to new France, right. The, the French are, they're very Catholic. There's a lot of Jesuits, very, very educated. They don't see uh, yes they don't see the indigenous people like they don't think that they're <laughs> praying to the right god but they don't see them as a sort of violence onto themselves they're like we should just make these people catholics um yep. which like obviously later becomes like this very awful thing that we can you can read about in the canadian news if you would like to but at this point in time it's the colony is so small, the number of French people, they're so dependent on indigenous communities that there there can't be that like fear. And again, the Jesuits are very they're just they're just very confident in the power of like grace and the redemption of Christ that like, well, if we just get these people to like stop 
believing what they believe, then like everything is fine. Like they can't hurt me with that. Um, there's less of a fear. Like the devil is out there, but it's not this like presence within the communities that they're trading with. Whereas the Puritans are very afraid of any slip up, any sin that they commit could lead them to possession, to witchcraft, to making a compact with the devil, right? Any sort of like, any sort of sin could be an unknowing contract with the devil. And so having an affiliation with indigenous people around them could lead them unknowingly into the lair of a demon, right? Um, so they're very, very afraid of uh, the indigenous people, the communities that are surrounding this, these areas where they set up their colonies. And then you have, you know, in the early 18th century, um, these massive conflicts that kill hundreds of people thousands of people on on both sides right these uh early quote-unquote indian wars um yep that that leave a lot of girls who aren't supposed to be outside community members right they're supposed to just be church members who are taken care of by men um sort of without families to care for them um and they've had contact with these indigenous people so they're not being led by men toward these like heavenly places and like they might have had to have done things to get back to safety or you know spent time as a slave or adoptee in an indigenous community um there's a lot of distrust of these girls the this could be like very small girls up to early teenagers because like you would not be married until full adulthood because um, the Puritans are very much about individual choices. Yeah. Um, it's an individual religion that happens like within yourself, your compact yeah. with God, your compact with the devil, right? Um, so you have to protect your whole community so that they can't make those bad choices, right? Um, and these girls, you don't know what they've done. They're coming to you like maybe your nieces of your brother, like the, the daughter of your brother who had moved up to Maine and then got, you know, had issues in these wars that were happening and died. And like, she's made her way back. You don't know what she's done. There's distrust. There's, um, she doesn't have a, a place in the community, right? There's not somebody to marry her. Um, you don't have enough money to support her. Like there's these people who don't fit into the into these specific places from their birth are a problem and especially if they're girls um because they're supposed to just be members of the church that that lead everyone sort of to salvation and so you get the the sort of base you get this sort of uh, a pressure cooker of what was happening during the Reformation, right, that led to all of the witch trials during the Reformation about, you know, at the this is Salem and the other witch trials yep. of New England happen at the very, very, like, it's been quite a few decades since the height of the witch trials in Germany um, and England. Um, these people have not been part of witch trials in Europe, 
what happens here, though, is is sort of like a, a condensed version, right? Because yeah. what you have happening in Europe with the witch trials is a, you know, this, this fear of, like, they're reestablishing what a religion is. And so, like, what is a sin? When do you make a compact with the devil? What constitutes witchcraft? Um, you know, what is your personal relationship with God or demons? Right? That's what's happening there. This is happening... In a very small amount of time, in and the main fear is around girls right. because of what their position within the religion is supposed to be, and anything that forces a girl out of that um, is dangerous. And girls themselves are yeah. internalizing that as well, right? Because you have this idea of of any sin could be the one that that signs you over to the devil um a lot of girls confess to witchcraft and if you look at the documents it's yeah it was when i was doing x this like very mundane like i had impure thoughts and clearly then i had a dream where i left my body and through Mm -hmm. these impure thoughts signed the book of the devil and like since then i've been doing you know his bidding and it's like you don't you're she's being a normal teenage girl but in the context of that like religious space she is yeah. literally a witch and causing all of these problems and violence that is happening on the margins of these communities um so girlhood is like really dangerous if you're a if you're a puritan in the 17th century obviously sort of all of these things kind of as the societies become more solidified as they they gain traction in uh in the colonies as they become more powerful and as as you move into like right the uh war for independence and the like era of the new republic um these cultures become less sort of fearful and women take up the place of educators of children and stuff you know they sort of take on that role that started with the Puritans, right? Of like, women are going to be the religious educators in the home. um, And they become sort of just the general educators in the home. Um, That's where you get like the, the mothers of the Republic. But the sort of opposite thing happens then as you move into that era in indigenous societies, because of all of the trauma, you have sort of a, a similar thing to what's happening. It's, not a great comparison, but if you take this like fear of the witch trials in New England and compare them to the witch trials that happened in indigenous communities later, it is this sort of religious fear around uh, like society, societal yeah. turmoil, right? Um, because as the, the colonies get more and more established, as the United States becomes a thing... Um, stuff gets real bad for the indigenous nations that had existed in those spaces before. Um, and the, the backlash to that is often really gendered and influenced by the religion that is brought over from Europe. Um, so the, there had, especially in the um, Eastern nations, right. Uh, that we've talked about mostly the like Iroquois, Iroquois, the Iroquois influenced uh, nations, so like all of the nations that were part of the the Iroquois Confederacy, later the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, and down through like the uh, Cherokee, 
had concepts of witchcraft to begin with, and they punished witches with like torture and death. Um, and so then to add on the cultural influence of uh, like European Protestantism, uh, it became more and more gendered as you get into the 18th century and as things sort of start to, to fall apart. And as you have women who are the entry point for white settlers uh, entering the community, right? Women, if uh, a, an indigenous woman marries a settler man, that man is brought into their community and those children are part of their community. So you have women being the sort of entry point of settlers um, and girls being sort of the entry point of settlers into these communities. The, the fear of girls uh, and women becomes more and more of a thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. So like the, the like division of girlhood yeah. to womanhood isn't sort of as strong. It's sort of like a married unmarried thing. Um yeah but yeah and like the influences of what what you're going to be doing as a woman once you start being educated at least if you're outside of new netherlands uh, like that the idea of it's sort of just like your period of becoming right like the the idea of of womanhood um when you're talking right. about the new world so i mean i think yeah we got some major takeaways from this episode in terms of what it means to be a girl, how you're looked at in society, how you're treated. I mean, it seems to mostly come down to, for a lot of the cases that we've looked at, it's a lot of preparing you not only for womanhood, but for being a wife and a mother. And that yeah, sort of specifically... <laughs> those roles yes but it also depends very much like what that preparation looks like really changes based on the context of your culture yeah. and of your community so i mean preparing to be a wife and mother in sparta is obviously very different than preparing to be a wife and mother in a puritan <laughs> colony or in an indigenous community yeah. like it's very different expectations but i think you know, overall, we see that I I also think there is this idea that, like, girls were just, like, fully, you know, not educated and that kind of thing. And I think I think we've put that semi to rest. Yeah, because I think you'd be hard pressed to argue that any of these girls that we talked about weren't educated. But it's a question of what an education looks yeah. like and what that means in in the society yeah. that you are living especially in. Especially post-Reformation, because with that, it became really important for lay people to be able to read. And so the idea yeah. that, like, oh, well, like, this girl wouldn't be educated at all. Like, no. Women had to be able to read, yeah. or they could be tricked by the devil. <laughs> exactly. And even prior to the Reformation, right, if we're looking at, largely, we're talking about the Middle Ages and antiquity, like, yeah, a lot of the times girls didn't learn how to read, but a lot of boys didn't either yeah. because it just wasn't something that they really needed yeah. at the time. And it was seen as just like, okay, that seems like a waste of time as compared to teaching them how to like 
not starve, yeah. not freeze to death. <laughs> Basic counting not, and arithmetic. You know. Yeah, in yeah a pre- exactly. In a generally preliterate society, like maths would be more important than than re- yes. literacy. But like once you get into, you know, like the printing press, the the Protestant Reformation, uh reading is really yeah. important. <laughs> And I think it just is, like, it does show that, like, we're so biased in our own views of, like, being literate is being educated. You know what I mean? Like, whereas when you look at it, it's like we are a blip on, you know, in, in the history of human civilizations. And, you know, you look at, for the vast, vast majority of people and places, like, writing didn't even exist reading didn't exist and they got along just fine so i think like you know we are very quick to dismiss like oh these like oral traditions are useless and it's like well what are you doing right now you're listening to two ladies talk about the past what is it it? like i love all those things where it's like as you go back further and further like the people who are upset about new technologies right so you see like the Oh, yeah. It's like the people who are upset about everybody on the train with their phones, but you can find all of those newspaper <laughs> articles about all of the people being upset about everybody reading the newspaper on the trains or the trams, and then, like, you know, people being upset about women reading novels and books. Like, oh, we're going to corrupt the mind of these women, or like, uh, just if you writing go back things to ancient down in general. Then yeah. you won't remember them if you can They're just literally... write it down. Like,. <laughs> Yeah, genuinely, they're like, well, it's making people stupid because they just write it all down instead of remembering it like a smart person. Yeah. And I'm like, so honestly, what- you got me there. Because I have to write down everything. If I don't write it down somewhere, I'm going to forget. Yeah. Ideas about what counts as education change with what is useful to your society. Yeah. Exactly. And I think... With that, we will end it for now. We'll see you next week when we talk all about boys and their childhoods and their educations in the past. Uh, It gets significantly more violent, but, you know, (laughs) such is life. (laughs) Okay. And we'll see see you later. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Baba Yaga Project. If you want more awesome Baba Yaga content, uh, you should join our Patreon where you can get access to bonus content, exclusive merch, um, our super special Discord, and extra book club content. Um, We want to specifically shout out these Patreon members. Yes, special thank you to John, the Age of Darkness podcast, Christian, Jessica, Jack CW, Whispering Sage, Annie, Adriana, and Katerina. We are delighted to have you on board, and thanks again for helping make the Baba Yaga Project possible. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Baba Yaga Project, and as always, thank you to all our patrons for making this project possible. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and her website for the most up-to-date happenings in the project. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It'll really help us continue the project and expand in some really exciting ways. And there's Patreon-exclusive merch! Thanks again, and we'll see you next week! 